Exodus 14, 10 through 31. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sand on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back, by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord 
and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The word of the Lord. So we are continuing uh, through our series on the book of Exodus, and this week we get back to uh, what is maybe the main theme, um, the main question in the whole book of Exodus, and that question is, what is salvation? That's not a question that really comes up very often in daily conversation. Um, in fact, I think a lot of people would probably like to get rid of that category altogether, but still keep spirituality Because a lot of people would say, look, we identify um, as spiritual but not religious. And one of the things people mean when they say that is this idea that we should get rid, we should reject these traditional religious ideas like sin and salvation. With all due respect, that's impossible. Because there are two questions that everyone, and I mean everyone, has to answer in order to make your way through life. And those two questions are, what's wrong with the world and what's the solution? Your answer to those questions, it is your doctrine of salvation. And everyone has a doctrine of salvation because everyone has answers to those questions. So for instance, Luc Ferry is an atheist French philosopher who wrote a best-selling book some years ago called A Brief History of Thought. It's a history of salvation Um, But in the introduction, he says something really interesting. He writes, It is by trusting in a God that some of us seek salvation. But for those of us who are not convinced, the problem remains unresolved, which is where philosophy comes in. In a nutshell, philosophy also claims to save us, if not from death itself, then from the anxiety that it causes. In other words, if religions can be defined as doctrines of salvation... The great philosophies can also be defined as doctrines of salvation, but without the help of a God. Do you see what he's saying? This atheist French philosopher is saying, even if you don't believe in God, you have a doctrine of salvation because everyone has answers to these big questions of life. Everyone has an answer to the question, what is salvation? What's wrong with the world? What's the solution? Our problem a lot of times is we assume we already know what the Bible means when it talks about salvation, and most of the time we don't. This is true, by the way, oftentimes just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. If you really want to understand what the Bible means when it talks about salvation, this passage that we just read is one of the best places to look. Because over and over again in the Bible, this event, the Red Sea, the Exodus, it's held up for us as a model or a pattern for what Jesus did on the cross. So if you really want to understand salvation, this passage is a great place to look. What is salvation? In this passage, we see the Israelites getting free. So let's ask three questions about that, okay? What are we getting free from? How can we get free? And why can we get free? All right? What are we getting free from? How, can, how do we get free? And why can we get free? All right? First, why, what are we getting free from? Let's recap the story a little bit. If you remember, the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. um, But God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Pharaoh won't do it. So God sends a series of plagues on Egypt in order to get them to let 
Israel go, which they finally do, but immediately Pharaoh has remorse. We didn't read it because it's such a long chapter, but at the beginning of this chapter, uh, Pharaoh, in a tremendous wave of remorse, he says, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go from saving us. He's full of remorse, so he gathers his army, they jump in their chariots, and they go chasing after the Israelites to corner them by the Red Sea, and it's an impossible trap. They, they can't go backwards because the Egyptians are waiting there to take them back into slavery, but neither can they go forward because that way leads right into the heart of sea and certain death. But here's what's so perplexing about this. Um, in verse 10, it says they, that's the Israelites, they feared greatly, they were terrified. But then in verses 11 and 12, they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Is that what they really said? Moses, we like it here. Leave us alone. We don't want to leave Egypt. Is that what they really said? If you go back to chapter 4, it's really interesting. Moses and Aaron, they go to the people of Israel, and they tell them God has sent them to get them out of slavery. But here's what it says. And the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Now that's what they said originally, but here they're in complete denial about it. What's going on? Here's what's going on. Our culture loves the idea of freedom. There is maybe no value in our culture that is more exalted than the idea of freedom. So Think of all the narratives, all the things we say to ourselves. We say things like, everyone should be true to themselves. Really, the way we say that today is, you do you. Or, or we say things like, everyone should be free to live however they want, as long as they don't hurt someone else. That, that we have all these little sayings, all these little narratives, because if there's one value in our culture that's more cherished, more enshrined than anything else, it's this value of freedom. But the way our culture defines freedom is like this. Freedom means having no lord or master. You give obeisance to no one. Freedom is defined as being your own lord and master. But look at Israel here. You know, according to our culture's definition of freedom, they're free because Pharaoh let them go. Te technically speaking, objectively speaking, they have no lord or master, but they are in total bondage here. First, they're slaves to fear. It says they're terrified. Secondly, they're slaves to their circumstances. I mean, they saw God do amazing things to get them out of Egypt. But as soon as things get a little rough, God is nowhere on their radar. As far as they can see, there are only two alternatives in front of them. Uh, one, they can go back to Egypt and back to slavery, and the other one is death in the sea. Uh, they've seen God do amazing things, but, but the idea that God might intervene in this situation doesn't even occur to them. They are in total bondage here. They're slaves to fear. They're slaves to circumstances. They're free, but they're not free. Why? Because... One of the main themes in the book of Exodus, and we've been seeing this week after week, one of the main messages in the whole book is that if you serve anything other than God, you're a slave. Remember, God said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go, not that they may have no Lord or master, but that they may serve me. 
one of the main messages of the whole book of Exodus is that if you're not serving God, if you're not worshiping God, you are going to serve something else. And whatever that is, it is your master, and it will come after you, and it will say, serve me or die. That is one of the main messages, the whole book of Exodus. Exodus, very brilliantly, is actually showing us that our modern definition of freedom is an illusion. It's a sham. There's no such thing as being your own Lord and master. Every single one of us is going to serve something, and whatever you serve, that's your master. And if it's not God, that master is going to come after you, and it is going to say, serve me, or I am going to put you under the verdict of condemnation. And I want to suggest that every single one of us in this room knows exactly what that means because every single one of us is looking for a verdict, but we're trying to get away from the verdict of condemnation and find a verdict of commendation. Because every single one of us, what we're looking for is that verdict that says, you matter. You are loved. You're special. You're safe. You're significant. You matter. Every single one of us needs that. So for instance... Um, I don't know if you've heard of Brene Brown. She's a very well-known um, researcher and sociology, best-selling author. She gave a very famous TED Talk a number of years ago called The Power of Vulnerability um, that absolutely went viral. Every time I go back and, and look at it, it's you know, jumped you know, millions of views. This last week I went and watched it again. Over 36 million views in this TED Talk. Um, one of the things she says in this is that when she began her, uh, her research, she began with this idea that every human being is hardwired for love and belonging. That, that as human beings, that's the one thing that, that almost defines us as human beings. We're hardwired for love and belonging. However, she discovered that there's one thing that will absolutely destroy our sense of love and belonging. Guess what it is? Shame. It's the idea that I'm not worthy of love and belonging. But she also discovered another group of people, and she called them the wholehearted people. And she said wholehearted people were these people that actually had a very vibrant sense of love and belonging. And she discovered that the reason is because they had an innate sense of their own worthiness. The wholehearted were people who believed that they were worthy of love and and belonging. And when I watched this video the first time, I thought, man, no wonder this thing went viral. Because she just tapped into like the mother of all questions. Do I matter? Am I worthy of love and belonging? Am I worthy? That is the question, but it immediately raises another question because Brene Brown says, okay, the wholehearted people, they believe that they're worthy of love and belonging. Okay, great, but how do we know we're worthy? That's the question. And it's not like the kind of question you can just ask Siri or Alexa. How do I know I'm worthy? I tried. You know what Siri said? I can't answer that question, Eric but I can look it up on the web if you like. <laughs> we need to know not only that we are worthy of love and belonging, we need to know why. You can't just assert your worth. It has to be grounded in something. You can't just assert it. That's not the way the human heart works. If we just try to assert our worthiness of love and belonging, well, I just know that I'm worthy of love and belonging. It doesn't work like that. That's like children whistling in the dark. 
Every single one of us has to have something. We have to ground it in something, something that we can point to and say this. This is how I know that I'm worthy of love and belonging. Everybody has something like that. And whatever it is, that's your real master. Whatever it is, that's your real God. Now, here's how this works. What we do is we get into covenants with these little false gods because that's what they are. They're false gods. We get into covenant relationships with them. What's a covenant? A covenant is basically a relationship with conditions. And the way a covenant relationship works is like this. If you live up to your conditions in the relationship, then the God blesses you. But if you fail the conditions, the God comes after you. Serve me or die. The God comes after you and it curses you. So there are all kinds of gods that we get into relationships with. It might be the God of money or success or work or school or family or relationships or romance or thinness or beauty or approval or comfort or achievement. It might even just be the God of you know, your own moral performance or the God of being on the right side of history, which I would suggest is really a God of approval. But, but you see how this works. Whatever it is, we get into these relationships with these gods, and they come after us. If, if we try to get rid of these gods or if we fail these gods, what they do is they come after us and they put us under a verdict of condemnation. So, for instance, here's how this works. You know, maybe... Um, by the way, you know, if, if you do happen to do well at serving these gods, you actually end up feeling pretty good about yourself. You'll, you'll do well for a while, but you know how this works. If this is you, you're doing well, but there's always this little low-grade anxiety about your life. Isn't there like a drivenness, kind of a pressure, like a little pharaoh that's always chasing you around saying, keep it up, don't take your foot off the gas. Whoa, 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 did I say you could relax? Get back in there and get back to work. So that, listen, even if we're doing well at serving these gods, there's always a drivenness, there's always a pressure and an anxiety about our life. But, but if you fail that God, or, or if you try to get out from underneath that God, down comes the condemnation. Down it comes. So, for instance, if you're in a relationship and something goes wrong with that relationship, it's natural to be sad about that. But if you serve the relationship, God, if being in a romantic relationship is how you know that you're worthy of love and belonging, then when something happens to that relationship, you're not just sad, you're devastated. You fall apart, you melt down. And the same thing happens regardless of whatever God it might be that you serve, whether it's success, money, family, uh, work, um, success, whatever it might be. Whatever God you serve, if it's not the real God and you fail that God or try to get away from that God, it's going to come after you and it is going to put you under a sentence of condemnation. Friends, you know, this is the biblical definition of sin. You know that sin is far, far more than just breaking a set of arbitrary rules. In fact, this is why the book of Exodus is so helpful, so relevant for us when we think about this, because Exodus is showing us that the essence of sin is not primarily behavioral, it's primarily relational. 
that it's not just doing bad things. Yes, doing bad things is a part of sin, but the reason we do bad things is because we've taken really good things and we've turned them into ultimate things. We've made little gods out of them, and now we've gotten into these covenant relationships with these gods, and when we fail those gods, we try to get away from them. They come after us, and they put us under a verdict of condemnation. Serve me or die. Salvation means getting free from all of the false gods that we serve and that put us in this impossible trap of slavery or condemnation. Slavery, I mean, salvation means getting free from our false gods, point number one. But point number two, we've just seen what we're getting free of. But secondly, we need to see how do we get free? How does salvation actually happen? Well, look at what happens here. The Israelites are crying out to Moses. They're terrified. But then in verses 13 and 14, classic statement from Moses. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. We just sang the song a bit ago. Be still. God will fight your battles. Dear friends, do you know what this is? How does God save us? It's by grace. You do nothing. Stand still. You you don't do a darn thing. Stand still. You don't do anything to save yourself. You watch God do everything. Stand still. That's what salvation means. And, And actually, when you see this, you realize we are a million miles away from the classic but classically mistaken stereotype of the God of the Bible especially the God of the Old Testament, very common to see that God as a harsh, stern, taskmaster God. And all he does is he just gives you a bunch of rules, and if you obey the rules, well then, then God will save you. But you have to work really hard to achieve that salvation. We could call that model the strive-hard model. It's the strive-hard model of salvation. That's... that's what we think of, but what do we see here? Think about it. I mean, look, God has not given the Israelites a single rule yet. He hasn't given them the Ten Commandments yet. That doesn't come for another six chapters. He hasn't given them a single rule, a single command. He hasn't told them to do a single thing. You know, this is a completely different model of salvation. It's not the strive hard model. It's the standstill model. It's the standstill model of salvation. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You don't do anything. You watch God do everything. And by the way, you'll notice that God doesn't even give them like a token role to feel like they're contributing to this. You know how if you're the parent of small children, sometimes if you're working on a project and your kids want to help out, What do you do? You'll give them like some little thing to contribute to help them feel like they're contributing to the project when they're really not. You just want them to feel like they are. So what do you do? You say, hey, you can carry this box, which has like nothing in it. Or you'll give them a toy hammer, all the while you're the one who's doing the real hammering. Why? Because you want them to feel like they're contributing even though they're really not, even though a lot of times it kind of takes you away from accomplishing what you want to do to help them feel like they're helping you do what you want to do. God doesn't even do that. It's not like God lines the Israelites up on the seashore. Hey, kids, I want you to line up on the seashore now, and then you blow really hard and part the water. All the while, God's standing behind them, and he's the one who's doing the real blowing. He doesn't even do that. 
Friends, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's how God saves us. Do you know what salvation is? I mean, not only do we get you know, the principle here, the principle of grace, we get a wonderful picture of it. What is salvation? Salvation is crossing over. So if you look at the Israelites, one moment they're on one side of the seashore, and Egypt can get to them there. As long as they're on that side of the sea, they're touchable, they're vulnerable, they're killable. But as soon as they cross over to the other side, all of a sudden, Egypt can't get to them anymore. It's like there's this barrier right in the middle, and as soon as Israel crosses over, Egypt can't get through that barrier. They're no longer touchable. They're no longer killable. They're no longer vulnerable. One minute they were under the verdict of condemnation, but they cross over, and the next minute they're not. Friend, salvation is crossing over. That's, by the way, that's why Jesus said in um, John chapter 5, verse 24, he said that, Whoever hears my word and believes in me has eternal life. That person does not come into judgment. They don't come into condemnation. They have crossed over. They have crossed over from death to life. Friends, salvation is crossing over. And listen, I know we say this every week, but you know what this is? This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Every other religion, every other approach to life is based on the strive hard model. That whatever you think salvation is, however you might conceive of salvation, however you answer those two questions, what's wrong, what's the solution, whatever that means to you, your solution is the strive hard model. Because in every other religion, every other approach to life, it's up to you. You have to strive really hard. It's the strive hard model. But the gospel is the standstill model. The essence of Christianity, the essence of the gospel is the standstill model. You cross over. It's by grace. Because what does gospel mean? Literally, the word gospel means good news. It's not like you get this rule book, now do these things and you will achieve salvation. It's not a rule book. Gospel means good news. It's news about something that's already been done for you. So for instance, it's very common in our culture, people say this all the time. Um, You know, they say that it's really, people. we should get away from saying that Jesus is God. We should get away from saying that Jesus is the Savior who died for our sins. That's too narrow. That divides people. The most important thing is that we should obey Jesus' moral teachings. If we just did that, then the world would be a better place. That's still the strive hard model, but it's not the gospel. No one ever put this better than C.S. Lewis in his little book, Mere Christianity, in a passage that's been tremendously meaningful to me over the years. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, The popular idea of Christianity is that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher and that if we only took his advice, we would establish a better social order. It is quite true that if we took Christ's advice, we should soon be living in a happier world. But you need not even go as far as Christ. If we did all that Plato or Aristotle or Confucius told us, we should get on a great deal better than we do. And so what? Why are we more likely to follow the advice of the great teachers? I'm sorry, he says, we have never followed the advice of the great teachers. Why are we likely to begin now? Why are we more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he is the best moral teacher? But that makes it even less likely that we shall follow him. If we cannot take the elementary lessons, is it likely we're going to take the most advanced one? 
Listen to what he says here. He says, if Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. There has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. The essence of Christianity, the essence of the gospel, and therefore the essence of salvation, according to the Bible, is not the strive hard model, it's the stand still model. It's not you working really hard to change your character in order to be worthy of, of God's love. It's God working really hard to change your status before him in an instant. You cross over, it's done. You did nothing. That's how we get out, okay? And that leads us to our last point. We've seen what are we getting free of? We've seen how are we getting free? But lastly, why can we get free? Why? Because we've got a problem. And it's actually a continuation of the same thing we were seeing last week during Passover when God's judgment came down on Egypt. Israel had to take shelter under the blood of the Lamb because they also were liable to judgment. That morally speaking, it's telling us that, that the Israelites are, are just as guilty, just as liable to judgment as the Egyptians. They may not have had as great an opportunity to activate that evil, but they're just as evil. They just don't have the same power as Egypt yet. That morally speaking, Israel is just as liable as Egypt. So even here in this passage, you see it. I mean, here they are grumbling and complaining against God. And as we go through Exodus, we're going to see a lot more of that as we go along. But, but they're crying out to God. They're moaning and groaning and complying. God, what have you done for me lately? And so here we get to the Red Sea. And when we get to the sea, we've got a big problem. And let me put it to you like this. In the, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, and, and really throughout the ancient world, if you didn't know this, the sea, um, water, is always a sign of chaos and judgment throughout the ancient world. Water is a sign of chaos and judgment. So for instance, if you go back to Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And it says that his spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. But then what happened? God gathered all of the waters together in one place and dry land appeared. The, the creation, God's creation was the process of bringing order out of chaos so throughout the rest of the Bible, anytime people resist God, anytime people rebel against God, what that does is it unleashes the forces of chaos in their life. It's like a reversal of creation. Anytime you resist God, anytime you rebel against God, it unleashes the forces of chaos in your life. The word theologians like to use is decreation. That whenever we rebel against God, it it's a reversal of creation. It's decreation. So for instance, when Noah built the ark and God was going to bring judgment on the world, why? Because the world was resisting God's good creational purposes. What happened? The flood water came. God, instead of holding the water, gathering it all together in one place so the dry land was there, whoosh, out comes the water. Judgment, chaos, decreation. It was an appropriate judgment. Or... Uh, we saw the plagues just a few weeks ago. When God wants to judge Egypt for their oppression of the Israelites, how does he do it? It's a reversal of creation. Decreation. Or here in this passage, the ultimate judgment, the final judgment is coming down on Egypt. How does it happen? Water. Decreation. 
which means our real question, our big problem is this. If Israel is just as morally culpable as Egypt is, how is it, why is it that Israel is able to cross over through the waters of judgment, but Egypt perishes? The answer is because they had a mediator. What does that mean? You know, it's really interesting when we look in this passage, one of the things we see is that um, in verses 11 and 12, the people are crying out to Moses. They're terrified. They're, they're petrified. They're grumbling and they're complaining. They're really, you know, God, what have you done for me lately? But then in verse 15, God says to Moses, why do you cry out to me? It's really weird because nowhere in the passage do we see Moses actually crying out to God. The Israelites are complaining. They're groaning. But Moses isn't doing it. So why does God say this to Moses? The answer is because God is actually rebuking Moses for the Israelites' sin. He is their representative. But that's not all. Just a little bit later in verse 21, you notice that it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back, and the waters were divided. Moses is the one who stretches out his hand, but God is the one who divides the sea. What's going on? Here's what's going on. Moses is a mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is, is one person who is so identified with the people that, that God puts his judgment on that person instead of the people. But a mediator is also someone who is so identified with God that when God wants to bring his power into the world, he does it through that person. It's a mediator. That's exactly what you see with Moses. He's the one, when God wants to judge Israel, he judges Moses. God, Moses is representing the people. But when God wants to bring his power into the world, he does it through Moses. Moses is a vessel of God's power. He's a mediator. The reason that Israel was able to cross over safely through the waters of judgment is because Moses was their mediator. Friends, I want you to know we have a better mediator. Because the reason that the Bible over and over again points to this event, the Exodus, as a model or a pattern of salvation is because it points to the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ, and the ultimate Exodus, which was the cross, what happened on the cross? I remember um, once, a number of years ago, Jenny and I, we were driving up the California coast. And uh, the farther up the coast you get, it's beautiful, but really what you have is a series of, of very dramatic, very jagged coast uh, cliffs. And I remember we, we stopped the car at several points, and it was a windy day, and I remember we got out and we were looking over one of these cliffs, and you could see the waves down below just pounding and crashing and foaming you know, down into the rocks of the cliff line down below me. It was so powerful. It was also terrifying because it was incredibly violent. And I remember thinking to myself, it is no wonder that, that the ancient world saw the sea, the ocean, as being such a terrifying symbol of chaos and judgment because anybody that was to fall into this would be absolutely pulverized against the rocks. Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ was cast headlong into the waters of judgment. He was pulverized against the rocks of all God's judgment on all our rebellion, all our rejection, all our betrayal of God. On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate decreation so that we could become a new creation. 
You know, Moses stretched out his hand and, and, and the waters were parted and Israel was able to cross over into safety. But on the cross, Jesus Christ stretched out his hands and he made a way for us to cross over from condemnation and death into freedom and life. Do you realize what that does for you? Remember what we just saw a little bit ago. Every single one of us is looking for a way to know that we're worthy of love and belonging. Every single one of us. We can't just assert our worth. It has to be grounded in something. The problem is everything we ground our worth and value and everything we point to and say, this is how I know. Every single one of those things, it's like a false master, false God. It just chases after you and says, serve me or die. You want to know how you can get away from that, that pressure, the anxiety, the fear, the drivenness, the condemnation that we all feel sometimes just a little bit, sometimes a lot. How do we get out of that? that Moses tells us, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You know, there's a huge emphasis in this passage on seeing Seeing, seeing the salvation. But that word that Moses uses for salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua. It's where we get the name Jesus. In essence, Moses is saying, stand still and see the Jesus of the Lord. Do you know what that means? It means that the more you fill your vision, the more you fill your imagination, the more you fill your heart with a vision of who Jesus is and what he did for you, the more that transforms your life because the more you see Jesus, the more you become like him. So for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this, that we all, beholding the glory of Jesus are being transformed into the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another as we behold him. Or in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John says that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. In other words, the more you see the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done, the more you see Jesus, the more you become like him. The more you see the reality of who Jesus is, the more that transforms you more and more into his image, the more you begin to get free of the condemnation, free of the fear, free of the anxiety and the pressure and the drivenness of our lives. You begin to get free because you're getting transformed by a vision of Jesus. The problem is we live in an age of distraction, because I can imagine someone asking, okay, great, we have to stand still and see Jesus. Make it real for me. Make it concrete for me. That's too abstract. What do you mean? Okay, here's the answer. We are already standing still and seeing the salvation of all kinds of other things in our life. Here's what I mean. Our lives are already filled with all kinds of things that have captured our imagination. They've captured our heart. They've captured our attention. So, so for instance... I mentioned we live in an age of distraction. Uh, you get on social media, and what happens? You're scrolling down. You're scrolling down. You're bored. You're glazed over. You're just scrolling. It's just like a mindless scroll until what happens? Something captures your attention, and you stop scrolling. What just happened? You stood still, and you saw. You stopped the scroll. You 
Something captured your imagination, and it stopped the scroll. You stood still, and you beheld, you gazed. Why? Because something captured your imagination at that moment. And it doesn't have to be social media. It could be TV. It could be video games. It could be pornography. It could be work. It could be any number of things. But our world is filled with all kinds of things that are constantly capturing your attention, capturing your imagination. And, and you are being formed by those things already because when that happens, you're already standing still and seeing. You're going on throughout your day, whatever you're doing, and then all of a sudden, you stand still and you see because it's captured your attention. And here's the really scary thing. It's happening, it's forming you, but it's happening without your permission. Well, if you really want to stand still and see the Jesus of the Lord, if you want your life to be transformed by a vision of Jesus, what you have to do is we have to fill our lives with all kinds of counter-formational practices. If you're already being formed by, by all the other things in the world, then the way to see Jesus and be transformed by him is you have to fill your life with counter-formational practices. So how do you do that? Well, one way is, you know, you're doing it right now. You come to church but let me tell you, you need more than that because one hour a week is not enough to counter um, veil against all the 167 other hours of the week because there's way too much going on in the world around us. One hour a week isn't going to do it. It's important, but it's not going to completely form you. So what you do, maybe you get in a community group. That's one of the big reasons we do this. There is nothing more countercultural and counterformational than gathering together with other people for an hour and a half a week to do what? To talk about Jesus? To talk about who he is and, and what he's done? Nobody does that. If you do that, that will play a counterformational role in your life. Or maybe, you know, in the morning, first thing, before you check social, before you check your email, and you make time for that, don't you? I don't know how much time, but say before you do that, what if you were to give five or ten minutes before you do that other stuff to just read a few verses of Scripture and meditate on it? You do that for 30 days, I guarantee it's going it's to have an effect on your life. And if it doesn't, come back to me. We'll sit down and I'll buy you a cup of coffee and we can talk about it. But you, what happens is pretty soon that 10 to 15 minutes turns into 20 or 30 turns into 40 or 50, it begins having an ever greater formational, counter-formational effect in your life. Or one more, you know, why not make technology work for us? You know, we have these wonderful phones that you can put a calendar on those things, you can schedule appointments on those things, you can get Siri to remind you three times a day for five minutes, hey, it's time to take a five-minute break to pray and seek Jesus. Why not? How much can you do to fill your life with these counterformational practices? The more you do that, the more you're seeing Jesus, and the more you see Jesus, the more you become like Jesus, and the more you become like Jesus, the more you begin to get free of all the anxiety and the pressure and the fear and the condemnation of your life. Don't you want that? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, then objectively speaking, you are already free. You've already crossed over. And the, the rest of the Christian life is finding ways of taking that reality that has already transformed your life and pressing that reality deeper and deeper into your heart so that you become more and more like Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, do you know the fear? Do you know the pressure? 
Do you know the anxiety and the drivenness and the condemnation, and would you like to be free of it? Every other God says, serve me or I will condemn you. Jesus Christ is the only God who says, I have already served you by being condemned for you. What a God. What a salvation. See Jesus. Cross over. He'll set you free. Let's pray.